Okay, good morning, everybody, or good afternoon, as the case may be. Um, I'm Simon Jackman. I'm the Chief Executive Officer and a Professor of Political Science at the United States Study Center at the University of Sydney. Um, and before we get any further, um, let me pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging of the First Nations peoples uh, from wherever you may be, but here in Sydney, the United States Studies Centre and the University of Sydney stands on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people who are part of the Eora Nation. And um, speaking of country, our thoughts, of course, are with what's happening to country uh, a, a bit more wet than the country might need or want at this people. And of course, the people who live on it. And I'm thinking particularly of my friends and family in Southeast Queensland. And, uh, and I'm sure many of you on this call today have uh, friends and loved ones uh, also uh, being affected by this extraordinary uh, rain bomb that's been assaulting the Eastern Seaboard of Australia this last week or so. And of course, uh, as a US study center, uh, our thoughts are of course, these extraordinary events that are unfolding uh, in Eastern Europe, in Ukraine, um, and of course, that will uh, come to be a uh, big part of our conversation today. Extraordinarily significant event, even though our our frame, or perhaps especially because our frame is is, is U.S. politics, and a preview of um, uh, President Joe Biden's first State of the Union address. The U.S. Constitution, of course, mandates that the president quote shall from time to time give Congress information of the State of the Union, capital S, capital U. And of course, now that is the one of the high points, one of the set plays in the Washington DC political calendar. Um, and of course, the speech this time uh, will take place roughly about 27 or 28 hours from now uh, on a uh, Tuesday night uh, in, in Washington. and. Coming at this point, given, as I alluded to earlier, what's happening in, in, in Eastern Europe, but also the state of play in US politics. This is a midterm election year. Um, and we'll talk about Biden's approval ratings in a moment. An awful lot of, of relevant political context to talk about as, as we get to sort of a preview of this speech. And it's that broader political context we'll spend most of our time talking about. Um, joining uh, me today, uh, from the U.S. Study Center is uh, Associate Professor David Smith, um, jointly appointed between the U.S. Study Center, uh, uh, but his uh, his university appointment is in the Department of Government and International Relations uh, in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. David, um, a, a Sydney product, uh, but um, went to the United States for his PhD, which he received from um, one of America's great uh, uh, higher educational institutions and great centers of excellence in political science, um, Big Blue at uh, the University of Michigan. Um, David, of course, his research examines political relations between the state and minorities, but has a particular focus on the role of religion in US politics and society. Uh, Bruce Wolpe is a non-resident senior fellow at the United States Study Center. Bruce, as I often say, is uh, the hardest working commentator on US politics. Um, you can't miss Bruce across multiple platforms uh, in Australia. 
Uh, we're especially interested, and I'll turn to Bruce in just a moment to tee this up for us. Bruce, extensive experience on two Capitol Hills, um, one in Washington and, and, and one in Canberra. Um, <clears throat> uh, we'll be drawing on Bruce's expertise on the US side uh, presently. And uh, Bruce, of course, though, um, is, a, is, a, is a published author with a university press, uh, an astonishing book um, that details um, what Bruce saw up close in the way Congress really works up close, particularly uh, through, the, through this committee system, something that's not very well understood uh, by Americans, let alone non-Americans. Um, uh, uh, that book um, that Bruce has co-authored now in its second edition uh, it was published by the University of Michigan Press uh, and, and see my earlier comments about um, University of Michigan's excellence with respect to political science. Quite a prestigious publication uh, for Bruce and, and, and in turn for the US Study Center. Um, and um, we're also joined today, I'm delighted to welcome Victoria Cooper uh, to, to our conversation today. Victoria uh, is a research associate here at the US Study Center uh, again, like David Smith, a, a product of the University of Sydney, um, uh, majoring here in politics and international relations and American studies. Uh, Victoria has done a variety, of, had a variety of research roles, uh, has a particular interest in right-wing extremism, uh, drug and alcohol reform, um, is, is one of a number of, you know, it's one of the great joys of running the study center to have young, energetic researchers uh, with, with broad interests um, in our midst and that the US Study Center provides a home and extracts value, frankly, from, from smart, hardworking people like Victoria. Uh, Victoria is also the editor-in-chief at the Young Diplomat Society. Um, so good morning, everybody. Uh, and, and Bruce, I gather we didn't talk about this in the lead up, but but from what we were saying before we came live on air, I'm gathering you're not in Australia right now. No, I, thank you, Simon. Thank you for your very generous words. It's an honor to be with David and Victoria and you to discuss the State of the Union 28 hours from now and what is going to unfold. Uh, no, I'm reporting tonight from Colorado. <laughs> and so it's all downhill from here, let me just tell you. Um, uh -huh. Okay. Um, I, I just want to set the scene for the State of the Union that we'll be watching on television. In historic terms, it just seems to me this is the first uh, State of the Union in recent memory where a major war is unfolding in real time that involves uh, important interests of the United States. Of course, many recent presidents have addressed wars that have been ongoing, Afghanistan and Iraq in particular. George W. Bush, of uh, uh, the 9-11 events occurred some four months before his State of the Union in uh, 2002. So here we are in real time with a very vicious war underway affecting the United States, and that will shape the speech. And the speech that Biden's going to deliver is not what he anticipated even a month ago. And um, it, it has been upended to a certain extent, and it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. Um, second, you're going to see a full chamber uh, with COVID restrictions eased, and that hasn't happened in two years. Uh, I, it'll be interesting to see how many members wear masks or don't wear masks. Uh, but there will not be visitors in the gallery. And um, habitual viewers of states of the union addresses uh, will recall how presidents have often gone to heroes and to make honor them, but also make political points. There won't be any of that. So the focus is going to be between the president and those members sitting in the chamber. Um, third, the um, 
capital defense that uh, was not sufficient on January 6th last year is back, it reinforced and offenses surrounding the capital. So there is an, an, not, not a martial atmosphere, but a heightened security atmosphere. And that's a legacy of the events of last year. Uh, there's also a truck convoy um, bearing down on the Capitol inspired by events in Canada that will undoubtedly get news attention. We'll see, have to see how that plays out. I think they want to clog the beltway uh, to at least um, uh, make a major statement about how they feel on various issues. Um, the tableau that you see is going to be very interesting. It is the president, the vice president, and the speaker of the house. Uh, and a couple of things uh, come to mind. Uh, first, will this be Nancy Pelosi's last uh, uh, State of the Union address as speaker of the house? And as you look, as the camera turns to the Republican leaders, is Kevin McCarthy looking at her seat and saying, I'm gonna be there next year and uh, I will be uh, presiding over the chamber next year. So that's going to be interesting. So you have a lot of history, a lot of politics, a lot of crisis and a, in a highly partisan atmosphere. Thanks, Bruce. Um, as a, it's, it's an astonishing piece of political theater. Um, if, if, if nothing else, uh, the State of the Union. Um, for this occasion, the, the main shot, of course, will be a Democratic President, Joe Biden, flanked by a Democratic Speaker and a uh, Democratic Vice President, both women. Um, um, but one of the highlights for me, as a just taking the spectacle of it, are those big applause moments and when the camera turns around to swing back over the chamber um and and we were talking about this in in the in the early going uh, in the in the pre-game that we had before we went live um for how many of those big applause lines um will we see republicans up on their feet um and and for wh for which moments of biden's speech do we see unity uh, and for which moments do we see disunity? And that might be a, a, a springboard to bring in David Smith. David, um, I'm wondering, you know, your, your take of just putting this speech where it sits in the current context of, of US domestic politics. Yeah, and so there have been reports that this speech has been substantially rewritten to focus on Ukraine. Now that's an entirely correct focus given the immediacy of the crisis, but I think it's also something that Biden would much prefer to talk about than a lot of other things. There's been some polling data released today showing that something like 82 or 83% of Americans are in favor of sanctions on Russia. The majority of Americans would not want to see US military action uh, in Ukraine, but they're certainly in favor of sanctions. So that's something that Biden can point to that he's done, that he is doing, that has a broad base of support um, in the American population and actually has a pretty broad base of support in Congress as well. Uh, when pressed, most Republican members of, of Congress have condemned Putin, not all of them, uh, but most. Um, they've, they've avoided talking about Trump's stance on Putin so that is, he won't get every Republican applauding, but he'll at least get some Republicans applauding when he talks about what the US is doing in Ukraine. Uh, his actions in Ukraine are broadly in line with public opinion about what they think should be happening in Ukraine. 
so he he will get some um, applause lines there. Beyond that, it's going to be very difficult for him, I think. And it uh, after about uh, May of last year, last year got very difficult for Biden. And I think that it's it's really hard to underestimate how demoralising it was for Americans that they appeared to be getting out of COVID. And then along came the Delta wave and along came the Omicron wave and you had the return to school closing and the return to mass infections and, uh, and, and mass deaths. I think when you look at the way that Biden's approval rating really fell off last year, yeah, the withdrawal from Afghanistan had something to do with it, but it really closely kind of followed the trajectory of COVID as well and the economic trajectory of COVID too, with as much as some economic indices have been improving, uh, inflation is the big one that is just so visible to people in their everyday lives. And, I mean, when talking about the public support for sanctions, I actually have seen polling that suggests that a majority of Americans would be prepared to see increased gas prices uh, as a result of sanction, you know, further sanctions on Ukraine. But there's a difference between telling a pollster that, oh, yeah, I'm prepared to make that sacrifice for Ukraine and how you actually <coughs> respond when those prices happen after a year of, of those price increases already happening. So I think it's entirely appropriate for Biden to be talking about Ukraine, but I think he'll also be really hanging on to this um, as something that will appeal to a broader base of people than he'll be able to appeal to otherwise. Yeah, that, that's, that's a great point for me to turn to Victoria. Uh, David. Um, before I do so, um, I'll just say you can submit questions live uh, in, in real time with the, the Q&A function here in the Zoom window. Uh, we will be turning to uh, some pre-submitted questions, but also any, any uh, live questions that come our way, say, uh, around about the bottom of the hour, uh, transitioning through the second half of the webinar to responding to, to some of those uh, questions from you. Uh, but Victoria, um, David mentioned, I think, yes, Ukraine is the obvious, the international situation uh, and, and on balance, uh, and I think David made a persuasive case for this, a, a net positive uh, for Biden uh, will give him plenty of um, um, uh, softballs to hit there in terms of speech making uh, and, 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 and appeals to a national unity and projecting himself as commander in chief, all that, all that presidential stuff. But meanwhile, Victoria, we've got a president of the United States with an approval rating that isn't great. Um, we've got a party that is on balance, I would, I would assess, demoralized uh, that they haven't done more with their majority, slim as they are, in, in both chambers of Congress, looking ahead to the midterms. I wonder if you could perhaps share with us some of your observations about where what it is that the Biden, uh, that the Democrats have accomplished in terms of implementing sort of quote unquote, the Biden agenda and, and the extent to which those domestic considerations are, are going to loom large in this speech and, and more broadly, perhaps Victoria, how the, 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 the policy frame and, and the, uh, uh, that, that comes out, the domestic policy frame that, that might come out of this speech uh, in the run up towards uh, midterm elections. 
Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right in the sense that his approval ratings are particularly low. They've been hovering in the low 40s for uh, a long time now, and no president has had approval ratings that low at this point in their presidency other than Trump. Um, and I think uh, that is, stands in contrast to who people thought they elected. I think when they elected Biden, one of the main things was that he was going to be someone to bring the country back to a sense of normalcy and stability and competency. So for him to share those kind of low approval ratings with Trump, I think uh, sits really uncomfortably uh, and sits especially uncomfortably for the Democrats, uh, especially if that was kind of uh, yeah, a fire for their election in 2020. I wonder what that will mean for the midterms if they were elected to not be Trump and they're sort of mirroring Trump at this point. I don't know if that um, puts them in good standing heading into November. Um, but in terms of the state of the union, it is bleak, as David was putting out, uh, pointing out, that there's lots of things that haven't gone particularly well. Uh, but I wonder as well if there's maybe too much fixation uh, that the Democrats are flat out flailing. I think there's a lot of whataboutism and they've actually done really well in a lot of um, senses. Uh, look at the constraints that they have. They have incredibly strong majorities. And I think, um, you know, a 50-50 split in the Senate, for example, and I think um, if you look at Obama, Obama had uh, 57 uh, Democrat members and Biden has managed to pass more than Obama did in his first 11 months with only 50. Um, so I get the sense that, you know, anyone can play poker with a bad hand, but it takes a real maestro to play poker with a, uh, sorry, anyone can play poker with a good hand, but it takes a real maestro to play uh, well with a bad one. Um, and just to run through some of the highlights, it's hard to go past the infrastructure bill. I mean, that was the one big fixation for the year. Perhaps the second flank of that hasn't passed yet, and that's been a huge disappointment and also has revealed Democrat infighting, which also doesn't uh, fare well for the administration. But uh, that infrastructure bill was really needed. I mean, in January this year, Biden went to Pennsylvania and a bridge collapsed in uh, Pittsburgh. Axios released a report earlier this month that said a third of the nation's bridges needed major repairs and take 30 years at this rate to fix all America's structurally deficient bridges. The infrastructure bill was needed. It was expensive. It was a trillion dollars. But it also got the uh, support of 19 Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, who, as we all know, has made it his policy to be against anything that the Biden administration will put forward or the Democrats will put forward. So that's a major achievement. And some of these things have been getting attention, but others haven't. And I think one that I'd like to draw attention to is um, Biden appointed the most number of federal judges uh, in his first year uh, since Reagan. Uh, so Trump appointed 19, Obama appointed 13, uh, Obama uh, and Biden appointed 42. And it's also the most diverse range uh, in terms of both background, in terms of his appointed public defenders, uh, and that includes his recent Supreme Court pick, which we might get to later, um, but also demographically diverse. And that's been uh, an election promise. He said he wants institutions that look like America and he's been delivering on that. And that's important. These judges are going to hear cases of national significance. Uh, and he's learning from Obama, who uh, had 30% of his nominees shut down in his second term. So I think there's been a lot of attention on the negatives, but there's been a lot of positives um, from the administration, and especially considering those constraints of those slim majorities and other things like Mitch McConnell, uh, the pandemic just adding another plate in the air to juggle uh, and the unforeseen Delta and Omicron strains. I think when you consider those things and the expectations thrust upon Biden in his first year that he's done exceptionally well, and perhaps that deserves a bit more attention. That's terrific, Victoria. Um, you, you've covered a, a ton of ground there that I want to perhaps cycle through. Um, 
over the balance of our time, um, quite literally. I mean, I think we'll spend the next 15, 20 minutes perhaps getting to that. Bruce, um, um, Victoria's assessment there, and, and perhaps the premise in my question to her about Democrats feeling as though, look, my assessment would be 12 months ago, um, we have a Democrats were telling themselves a historic opportunity for the biggest expansion of the US social safety spending net um, since since uh, the Great Society, if not the New Deal. Um, uh, have, and, and you and I talked about this in webinars in private. Um, uh, got to go hard. They have to go hard. That'll be the impulse. They've got to make the most. You can't. They can't go back to their primary election constituencies, let alone the general election, um, with a pair of sixes. <laughs> Speaking about playing a, a your card analogy, Victoria. Um, um, where I'd just be interested, Bruce, your assessments of that mindset inside the Democratic Party right now about how they're thinking about what they've accomplished, what messages they're going to take back home, first things first, primaries, which are imminent, um, and then um, with a long tail, but then heading into the, the midterm elections um, come the fall. And then perhaps the speech in that context, Bruce. And, uh, thanks so much. I agree with everything that David and Victoria have outlined, and it's absolutely true. Um, Biden has accomplished more in those areas that um, uh, that he, when he started with uh, the recovery program, much bigger than Obama's, the infrastructure program, one of the biggest in history. But he hasn't delivered on the on the social support programs in education, in health, in seniors, in childcare, and in tax cuts. Uh, and and so and Washington has now stopped. Nothing significant has passed since the infrastructure bill. And people are looking at it. People are very rational. Um, it, the economy, inflation is really hitting them hard. It's a choppy world. There is no normal. And Washington is deadlocked and can't produce. So who do you blame? You blame the president of the United States because he is uh, in charge. And that's why his approval is at 37% walking in there. So in terms of the speech, I think he wants to outline what, first of all, recall what he has done. And this will be the largest audience he's had since, since the inauguration, and he needs it uh, to yeah. try and make some yeah. breakthrough, cut through and get some points. He wants to um, tell everyone what he is, has accomplished. He wants to outline what he believes can still be gotten this year and, and the uh, responsibility of Democrats to do it. And then I think he wants to ask the Republicans, well, what do you stand for? What are you for? And wh why are you, you're not, you're not working with us. And so puts some of the burden for this on them and he'll call them extremists in, in many, in some regard. So I think that's what he wants to do. He has, um, Biden has no choice. Uh, he's losing 31, 31 members in the chamber, Democrats that are listening to the speech will not be there after yeah. the November election. They're, they've announced their retirement. He has gone out and campaigned on the infrastructure bill, as, as uh, Victoria said, in uh, Pittsburgh, when, when a, a bridge collapses, Biden shows up and says, I have the answer. Um, but, but he really needs to create, and people look at him, just given his age and given how Washington is deadlocked, he has to give them a sense of confidence that he is managing this country. And uh, that's if he can do some of that, that will be a major achievement coming out of the speech. Um David, both Victoria and Bruce have alluded to um, Biden's approval numbers. Um, um, in graduate school in the US, 
like me, David, I'm sure you learned about the rally around the flag effect and the, and the various theories for mm. it. Um, I think it's an interesting data point um, that at least in polls that were fielded late last week over the weekend in the United States, Victoria's observation is true. And indeed, an ABC News Washington Post poll came, you know, the first digit was a three, 38% approval rating. This into a major international crisis where, frankly, the US is showing leadership. Uh, the, the NATO alliance appears to have been shocked out of complacency and uh, domicility is, is sort of, um, I guess the question is, why aren't, why aren't Biden's numbers better in general, but why aren't they recovering uh, in the way that often crises uh, provoke this uh, so-called rally around the flag effect? Yeah, this is very interesting because as I pointed out, what Biden is actually doing in Ukraine has about an 84% approval rating. But when you ask respondents, do you approve of Biden's handling of the Ukraine crisis, it's below 50%. So at the moment, that question, that's just a proxy for how people feel about Biden in general. I'm beginning to wonder whether approval ratings in the low 40s are basically the new normal. I mean, this yeah, right. is what it was for yeah. Trump's presidency. It's what it is for Biden's presidency. And it wasn't that much higher during Obama's presidency. During Obama's presidency, it was more like between 45 and 50, but it was in the 40s. The 40s seemed to be the new natural home of presidential approval. As far as this crisis goes, I think there is an important difference between this and a lot of other crises, which is, at the moment, Americans are not directly involved in it. American soldiers aren't directly involved in it. There haven't been any Americans attacked. At the moment, for Americans, this is a bad thing that's happening to another place. And yes, they don't like what's going on, but it's not the same sense of their own country being under threat, which is typically what generates a rally around the flag effect. The last time we actually saw that was in March of uh, 2020, when there was a bit of a rally around the flag effect for Trump. That was, as far as I can remember, that was basically Trump's highest um, approval ratings came then. But I don't know if we are ever going to get the kinds of rally round the flag effects that we got in, say, 2001, where George W. Bush had 80% approval uh, for a year following 9-11, or even what we saw for George uh, W. Bush's father uh, during the Iraq war, where about a year before he got voted out by the American people, he was also enjoying 80% approval ratings. When Osama bin Laden was killed, in 2011, there was about a, a week period where Obama's approval rating went up to 60%, but then uh, came back down again. So I think that there's some evidence to suggest that in the current very partisan environment and where there's a very different kind of media as well, a far more fragmented media than what was traditionally around during those periods where you saw rally around the flag effect, you know, we're well beyond the days of three network dominance and, you know, two major newspaper dominance of everything. Um, I, don't, I, I don't think that we're going to see effects uh, that, that big again. Possibly if, if the US was directly involved in this conflict, then we would be seeing a bigger effect. Um, but I think that at, at the moment, we're not going to see this budging Biden's approval ratings very much. Um, yeah, so the way 
look, I agree with all of that. But the 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 idea that forties are the new normal with approval ratings at the metric, then as a metric, as a as a barometer of the president's stock mm. of political capital, um, it, it's we need a new calibration of it. I think I think that's a it's a real insight, David. Um, if you were if you were to plot the difference between the in-party rating of the president and the out-party the out-party rating of a president, mm. um, that gap, indeed, in the very first poll, right, the first poll, a day after mm. a week after inauguration, what what partisans the president's partisans say about that president and what the out-party that gap has been getting bigger since Bill Clinton. Um, and and so yeah. now an approval rating is averaging one mob who are generally very enthusiastic about mm. their guy or gal, um, but guys thus far. Mm. Um, um, another mob who, because of, I think, the media environment as well, are, are getting an information stream and have a set of, predispositions and, and information that that uh, that lead them to say the opposite and a small set in the middle that are really driving the ups and downs and the bumps and wiggles uh, but when you average those out um, 40s tracking around the 40s um, is probably the new normal I, I think I think that that's um, um, probably right but um, nonetheless is sort of still historically weird um, uh, to, to see um, and, and weird to see. The other thing about Rally Around the Flag is, um, you know, the way it was taught to me <laughs> um, um, and the way I've studied it is it's, it's, a, it's a partisan framing as well. Why does a president's approval rating spike um, in a positive direction? Uh, because partisan discourse is temporarily suspended and partisan elites from both sides are sending messages that the president get, has our support and it's a time for all those sorts of national unity messages. They're not, I'd say, a big part of the discourse uh, right now. Why? Because as you pointed out, David, American blood and treasure, it, perhaps it's just the treasure at this point, but but not the blood, um, um, thank heavens, mm. um, um, number one. But, uh, but number two, there isn't that partisan unity. Um, that there are, I know you, you, you're citing those polls that say 80% plus approve of what the US is doing. You, you replace that with what the Biden administration or Biden's handling, that'll fall immediately with the partisan cue there. Um, but you've got, you know, and I think this is something I, I can't let our webinar go without drawing attention to. Um, it's an odd, odd moment where you've got more than one or two voices in the Republican Party and certainly some leading media figures in that ecosystem. Um, um, so frankly, Putin's, Putin's way smarter than all of us, uh, uh, grudging, if not more than grudging, admiration for Putin. Um, and indeed that one poll, and I don't know how much to make of this, that, that among Republicans, Putin has higher approval ratings uh, than Joe Biden. And of course, you know, the last few establishment Republicans, Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney, just going ballistic berserk about that on, on weekend television. Yeah, I mean, to yeah, to be ahead, fair, David. sorry, can I, just, can I just add, to be fair, uh, for Democrats, the approval rating for Putin is higher than it is for Trump. 
Uh, I think there is a sense about among both Republicans and Democrats that the real enemy is at home. You know, what, what do I care what Putin is doing in another country? It's my own president who's destroying my democracy. So I think that, uh, yeah, yeah, that, that kind of environment is, um, that's why we're seeing uh, those kinds of results. That's, that's the typically deep and penetrating uh, insight and pithy uh, great form of words, the real enemy is at home that leads me to pivot to, that we associate with you, David, thanks, which is a great um, tee off to um, Victoria. Um, you know, studying extremist views is, is part of your uh, portfolio, uh, Victoria. I'm just wondering any reactions to that, um, that grad seminar David and I just had about rally around the flag and, um, and, and the current state of polarization uh, in the United States, given what's happening with Ukraine. And, and again, given the context of this speech coming up uh, tomorrow. Yeah, I, I suppose so. I mean, uh, an interesting statistic I've been finding at the moment is uh, amongst polarization, another area where America is quite divided is along age. Um, I think uh, if I've, I, a statistic I found particularly interesting was that in the January 6th um, insurrection, the average age was 41, whereas in most of these kind of populist um, uh, or authoritarian uprisings against um, you know, an executive power, the average age is typically a lot younger. So it's in the 20s and 30s. So you have older people that are more politically engaged. And I think that's coming across in a lot of commentary is that younger people are disengaged. And that's a statistic that David was referring to before about um, Ukraine and the approval of sanctions. Um, there's less uh, young people are supportive of those sanctions. I wonder if I have the statistic on that, but it was that 70% uh, of people uh, who are in that uh, baby boomer generation um, were supportive of those sanctions, but significantly less of young people, especially if it did lead to increased costs for inflation. You can look at more statistics along those lines. There's more younger people still living with their parents. Um, uh, I think the United States Study Center has done polling on this, and it's not by age, but 60% uh, of uh, Americans in December 2021 thought the best days in America were behind them. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, 15% more than who were reporting that uh, sentiment in uh, July 2019. And so I think there's a sense of disenfranchisement and disappointment. And uh, I wonder if even uh, get dejection among young people, and uh, they're the ones looking to their future uh, and seeing things like destructions in Ukraine. Um, and I suppose this has happened before. There's echoes of this in Afghanistan. But if you look at one of the justifying things that um, convinced Biden to withdraw from Afghanistan, he said the reasons for being there were increasingly unclear. And for young people who grew up not knowing what America looked like before Afghanistan and not knowing what America looked like before that unipolar moment, that kind of, you know, people aged between their 20s and 30s, Foreign policy interventions overseas, whether that be for Ukraine or for Afghanistan, they don't resonate as strongly. And what does is things like inflation, like polarisation, like climate change that haven't been receiving that kind of attention and social spending bills that haven't yet gone through, the things that haven't yet received the attention and the success that young people voted Biden in for. And they did vote him in. I have a statistic here that among people aged uh, under 30 in 2020, uh, Biden beat Trump out in their votes by 20 percentage points. So, you know, 59% of them voted for Biden, whereas 33 for Trump. So it's 
young people there for Biden, for him to be a transformational leader and to look to the future. And that's not all happening. And so distractions overseas like this, I think, are particularly demoralising for that younger group. So, Bruce, that's going to bring me back to you. Because um, Ukraine gives Biden an opportunity to, and, and one that he needs, um, as you said earlier. Um, um, but how do you talk about, you know, extract political capital uh, from, from the Ukraine crisis and, and, and frankly, the US playing, at least for now, a pretty strong set of cards, playing, playing the game pretty well there, I would assess, and as do many others, according to opinion polls, against this huge domestic overhang. You mentioned the inflation crisis earlier, uh, the this, this sense that you know, things aren't in control, or a real emotional trigger um, uh, for voters. Um, I want to I come back to you to sort of wrap up our review of how this uh, speech sits in the, in the context before we get to some um, audience questions. The speech is going to be given where you have different levels of enthusiasm in each party for their leaders. The latest polling shows among Democrats, about two thirds of them are very supportive of Biden, but among Republicans, 80, 90% of Republicans are behind their party's leadership. They smell blood, they feel that they're right, the Democrats are weak, divisive, socialist, so forth, and they're, and they're doing, and they're going after that. The other, and the, a reason for the, Lack of enthusiasm on the Democratic side is that, aside from all the social spending things that we outlined, there are other things that have not been delivered. Voting rights is, is dying in the Senate. Gun control is dying in the Senate. The Supreme Court has gone to the conservatives. And even with the appointment of uh, Justice Jackson, um, uh, Judge Jackson, it's, it's not going to rectify that imbalance. So, so what, what Biden, the message that Biden has to leave the country with is, if you're unhappy, unsatisfied with what Washington is doing, the reason's not me. I'm standing for all the things that you want. Elect more Democrats if you want this done. If I had 51 Democrats in the Senate, I could get this done. If I had a stronger majority, I can get this done. And it, it actually, to his credit, I mean, Victoria's point of doing more with less, the 98% um, of Democrats were united on his agenda and it passed the House and is in the Senate. Uh, Obama couldn't do that. Clinton certainly couldn't do that. So it is a tribute, but it's underappreciated at a time of real angst about the lack of normalcy in the country. And the thing here in Colorado, I'm in a, I'm in a place where there's a boom in hotels, a boom in housing construction, a boom in new restaurants and so forth. And I go into supermarkets and the shelves are half, not half empty, but there's stuff that's not there. Um, a bag of cookies cost $11.99 a pound last week. $12.99 a pound this week. Now I can buy the cookies, but I mean, people are not happy with what they're getting. And, and that really is a core that Biden has to tackle and turn around. And this speech is an opportunity. I think he should do, I think it would do okay, but it's not going to, there's no dramatic transformation in his presidency that's coming tomorrow night. Um, with that, um, I do want to make sure that the balance of our time, as promised, uh, we, we work in some reactions to um, some of these excellent questions uh, that came in both ahead of the webinar and live. Um, look, one thing I want to get to is um, um, 
USSC polling that we're about to release um, next month shows a, a, a real marked contrast in the certainly in, in, in everything between Democrats and Republicans, but especially on not just domestic policy priorities, but on foreign policy priorities. Um, um, you ask um, Republicans what, what things in the world the United States should be focused on. It's uh, uh, standing up to China uh, top, tops the list. Um, you ask Democrats, at least, back in December when we did this polling, um, it's climate change. And there's a huge gulf there. Um, and, and we'll have more to say about that in, um, in the middle of March as we release our annual State of the United States report um, on, on March 16. Um, but the, I'm wondering, Bruce, I'll start with you on this one. Is there going to be more support for, a, for bigger defense budgets, for um, perhaps less emphasis on climate change as an initial priority, but shoring up um, alliances, getting, but I think where the Biden national security team has been and, and came to office talking a very strong game about that, but the base of the party and indeed key roll call votes in both Senate and House reveal that perhaps the party is not where um, um, the executive branch uh, has been on this thing. Do you see um, what's going on right now in Ukraine prompting a, a recalibration perhaps of those priorities among Democrats and in terms of the messages that get sent from Democratic elites back into the party's uh, rank and file? Uh, yes, I think so. And, and Biden will um, uh, frame it as, uh, again, uh, the classic uh, uh, proposition that he's put forward that it's between autocracy and democracy. And this is a time when we have to step up. And I said we would be back with NATO and we are back and so forth. But this does stretch democratic constituencies. If you have more mm -hmm. gasoline to ease price pressures, that means less mm -hmm. climate change. If you're spending more in defense, that means less for social spending. So the left flank of the Democratic Party is going to not be happy. But these measures on security and uh, will and defense will pass because that is where mainstream Republicans and 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 where mainstream Republicans really are on these issues has been revealed uh, by what's happening in Ukraine. So the votes are there to do this, but the political consequences are perilous for Democrats under these circumstances. Um, David or Victoria, any any reactions to that? Because um, where I want to go to next is also. Um, a rethink perhaps in the United States, um, um, something that, you know, a lot of anxiety about the attention in Australia, about the attention you, the US political system, but perhaps the, is, is giving to theatres other than the Indo-Pacific. And, um, and, and, and here we are again, um, literally a, a week or two after uh, the, the release of a long-awaited Indo-Pacific strategy document from the administration. And uh, no one's talking about the Indo-Pacific <laughs> uh, this week, um, all likely um, um, for the next couple of weeks. Um, and any, any thoughts about that, the, the way that Biden might choose, as Bruce alluded to, to use his speech as a, bit, a rallying cry for a theme from his earlier speech to Congress about this battle for democracy, a battle for the 21st century. 
how many times will we hear the word China or Indo-Pacific uh, uh, in the speech? David, perhaps. Yeah, and I just, before getting to that, I just want to note that huge defence budgets are a very consistently bipartisan area of US policy. Uh, Biden hasn't cut the defence budget at all. It's still above $700 billion. He's being criticised because inflation means that, it, you know, $700 billion doesn't buy what it used to. But I'm, I'm sure that defence budgets are going to increase. It's really a political no-brainer because it's related to national security and also it's an engine of the US economy. I think that Biden is going to talk a lot about democracy in abstract terms. Um, I don't know... It, I, I'm not going to predict how much he's going to talk about China specifically. I think that given what we're seeing at the moment is that China is actually cutting Russia loose to some extent. So China abstained in the UN Security Council vote rather than uh, voting with Russia. And two of Russia's big, sorry, two of China's big four banks have now imposed sanctions on uh, on Russia. They're not doing they're not doing business with uh, with Russia. The fact that China is actually, you know, despite the fact that there was these weeks of it apparently increased closeness that it had with Russia in the lead up to this, the fact that China is now distancing itself from Russia, you know, maybe that would cause Biden perhaps not to go a completely antagonistic route towards China in this speech because, you know, Chinese media will be uh, watching it as well. But I really don't know. The Biden administration just seems so determined to confront China. I mean, as one commentator said, Biden's policy towards China is basically Trump's but with allies. Uh, it's, it's maintaining that level of confrontation. It's, it's maintaining most of the trade barriers that were put up uh, in the trade war, but emphasising the fact that uh, it, it's doing it in, in concert with allies. But, you know... Presidents often don't get to choose which part of the world is the major focus at any given time. And given the immediacy of the Ukraine crisis, I do wonder whether this speech might be a little bit less confrontational towards China than it would have been otherwise. I could be completely wrong about that. Biden might instead decide this is the time to go full on, uh, you know, defensive democracy everywhere, no matter who's, uh, who's threatening it, whether it's Putin, Xi or Trump. Uh, but I, the, the, the circumstances, just the, the delicacy of the circumstances, we're still in the first week uh, of this mm. war. Potentially, mm. what China does could really affect the outcome of the war in terms of giving or not giving Russia economic lifelines when the rest of those lifelines are being cut off. Um, yeah, I, it'll be interesting to see what he does. A lot of wisdom there, David, as usual. That, that's a lot of food for thought there, but time is tight. So I'm going to. Uh, rather than respond, uh, Victoria, why did you have a swing at that one? Yeah, I think the a lot of what's been covered, I would agree with. The only thing I would add is that the classic conundrum for the Biden administration is that all the right sentiment and all the intention is there, but the delivery just consistently seems to be falling short. I think if you look in June last year, uh, they passed the Senate passed the United States Innovation and Competition Act with two Senate majority support, which is massive when you look at uh, how divided and how much media attention that divided Senate gets to have six votes 
votes in favor of a US Innovation and Competition Act is massive. And that was an expensive bill. And it was also known as the anti-China bill. And that was because all of the ways that America was going to improve its industrial capacity, the ways that it was going to invest in its domestic manufacturing of chips, for example, uh, all of those things were set to improve American jobs, American livelihoods, and contribute to a better uh, domestic scene for manufacturing in America uh, and for essentially the uh, American economy. So again, the intention is there. It's yet to pass the House. And that keeps happening is that it's, yeah, the intentions are there and then nothing seems to materialize from that. And so I wonder if this uh, current thing in Ukraine is going to be a similar case where the Biden administration has all the right intentions and the right intention to keep that that domestic focus at home to build up its uh, domestic capacity. And that's going to be thwarted by uh, distractions overseas or by perhaps infighting in the House or other uh, distractions that might derail that. Um, that, That's a, I'm so pleased you brought up that particular bill, Victoria, because I think, I think we tell ourselves in Australia, uh, there's a bipartisan consensus on on China uh, in the United States. And that's true, but also, but only up to a point. Uh, Relative to the profound level of um, partisan polarization that exists in the United States, um, uh, is China a strategic competitor with the US? Yes, you'll get you'll get broad agreement on on that. What to do about it, or how urgently to um, to do things about that? Um, very quickly, um, you start to see uh, disagreements. The fact that the so-called uh, anti-China legislation hasn't come through the House. Uh, I want to hear if Bruce has got a take on on that. He understands the the Democratic House Caucus better than. Certainly anyone in Australia, um, uh, seriously, um, um, and, and many in the US. Um, but also, uh, David, the, um, so Congress, at the end of the day, they've passed a bigger defense budget than, or authorization than, um, than the administration asked. It got, it got amended up. Um, but it split the Democrats in the Senate on final passage. Um, um, it, it passes with all Republicans for it. And 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 a and a really quite a big split. There's been a few other votes like that in the U.S. Senate um, as uh, military uh, shipments to Saudi Arabia uh, split the Democrats, uh, for instance. And um, so while I think at a at a very at a high level abstraction, yes, there is a bipartisan consensus about about China. The translation of that into policy and particular. Uh, through the Democratic um, uh, caucus, perhaps more so in the House and the Senate, um, but the Senate's got some um, interesting votes to point to. Um, interesting, and, and I can't let this go. This will be a big focus of our State of the United States report. Uh, this last five or 10 minutes of conversation is a theme um, that we, we visit uh, in, in much detail uh, in our State of the United States report. But Bruce, uh, any, any reactions to those observations about where Dems are on some of these national security strategic matters. I think I think Biden is going to uh, call out for uh, Congress to finally approve that bill, and it'll put the House Democrats who have some reservations into an impossible position, and the bill should pass. And I think he'll use the moment of crisis uh, in Europe to say we have to be as better as best prepared as we possibly can be. So I think I actually think it's going to get a specific mention, and there'll be big applause for it on the floor. And okay. it'll pass. And it will pass by July 4th. By July 4th. Yeah. 
that date <laughs> by the yeah, summer. Independence Day. Celebrate it. <laughs> okay. Um, um, a question here from um, um, Fred Chilton, um, a regular on our webinars. Um, is Trump and, and indeed some other Republicans, the, the comments about Putin's strategic savvy and genius uh, and whatnot, um, is that a net positive or a net negative um, for uh, Trump seeking to run and potentially running uh, in, in, in 2024? Uh, David, any, anybody want to weigh in on that? Uh, I would suggest it's probably a net nothing, uh, as is you know as is so often the case with these things. I don't think it particularly helps him because there are actually a lot of Republicans who don't share that view of Putin. So as much as the hardcore Trump base will uh, will love those comments, the people who are watching Tucker Carlson saying um, very similar things, it's not going to broaden his support in any way, even among Republicans, let alone among Democrats. Uh, but Trump says so many things uh, <laughs> all the time, really, was, you know, th this was something that got attention put back on him briefly. So as far as he's concerned, uh, that's probably a net gain. Um, uh, you know, we, one of the things that we should have learned from his presidency is that there's no comment, no position, um, not in, hardly even any action um, that Trump takes that makes a different in the, difference in the end because there just are so many of them. And the way that people feel about Trump, it's not related to these uh, kinds of things. It's related to deeper issues around identity and worldview. Anything to add, Victoria, beyond nodding your assent? <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, next question, we've probably got time for one more, I think. Okay, okay. Um, Hey, um, uh, a, a great question, um, uh, one that we're, um, perhaps uh, we, we don't pay enough attention to, I don't know, it, it comes and goes, but um, Carolyn Kennedy, Bruce, um, um, uh, an ambassador for Australia, um, any, any news? Um, I imagine a Ukraine crisis, uh, a crisis in Eastern Europe um, occupying just so much bandwidth from the administration and indeed Congress as well, isn't exactly going to speed up the nomination or might it actually be helpful? Uh, um, and any, any thoughts from you, Bruce, on that one, knowing Congress as you do about the machinations there? Uh, has a nomination actually gone up to the Senate yet or, or where are I, I we? Believe, I believe it has. The key thing to watch is the hearing. And when that occurs, then there should be a vote shortly thereafter. I think there's every reason for her to be in Australia as soon as possible. Uh, because in August, there have been tensions with India, for example, on the Ukraine situation, and then the China-Russia Entente. It's all very, very important. So I think, um, I think she's eager. I think Biden is eager to have her here, but the key thing to watch is when our hearing is scheduled and then the process will move very quickly. Do you have a theory of the case as to, for, for an important ally, uh, you know, and I'm not gonna say United Kingdom and Japan, I think we have to be realistic about 
about where Australia sits in, in, in the pecking order. In fact, the, perhaps if anything, the, the stability of the relationship, the, just the huge you know, institutional sort of guardrails, if you will, um, sort of mean things go quite well with, with State Department um, uh, career people um, running the relationship and defense to defense intelligence agencies, you know, all those relationships uh, trucking along. But do you have a theory as to why um, the Senate hasn't taken this up yet? Um, no, I, I first, I, I think there's just been on a whole raft of appointments. They've just been slow in putting them forward. Uh, and I, there's no issue on paperwork or anything like that because she was an ambassador. Uh, I just, it, it, it really goes to the larger political question that we're talking about. Is Washington working anymore? I mean, are people getting things done? And I think there is frustration that no, uh, the, our system is paralyzed. It's hyper-partisan. It's not um, doing anything constructive for it. And, and everyone is getting blamed. Everyone in power, and the Democrats are in power, they control the government, is getting blamed. And I think that's the, she's part of this larger problem. Fair enough. Um, look, that's bringing us up um, to the uh, to the top of the hour. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and 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 wrap up uh, proceedings. I want to uh, thank you all. That was a a really great conversation.